Yeah, so I don't know. You want to warm up with a little news of the week? That's what we. Yes. Uh, that's kind of what we had in mind. The the big fucking news of just uh, two like himbos trying to do a coup in Venezuela. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I don't know if that counts as the big news. I mean, the other thing is the um, the court ruling with the the ECB and the Bundesbank. Um, yeah, we're not going to talk about that, even though it's big news. <laughs> it's complicated. <laughs> just just going to acknowledge it. Uh, yeah, it's bad. This is very unclear. Jeremy blowing That's... up the eurozone. It's very fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's not like they weren't doing that before. So yeah, but like now, now it's now it's formalized, and now there's like court documents. Yeah, it's like done in the most like 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 German sense too. Is like because like every German is just like like secretly like a legal positivist. It's like well, if, if the you know if the the, uh, the law the, whatever, says it, the German, <laughs> yeah, if the law says that then that that the ECB can't do you know fiscal policy, then you know, damn it, yep. must be the case. I won't question it. Well, like the rest, you of can't Europe, murder me. That's illegal. Yeah, and it's like it's literally just like that like episode of SpongeBob where like the entire city is just like engulfed in fire around SpongeBob, and then SpongeBob and Patrick are like, look at it. We like we saved the day because we said that, that this is illegal and um yeah i have no idea what this means for the future of like european you know uh, uh economic policy because it is so incredibly dangerous with the um Verfassungs, whatever the hell it's called Verfassungsgericht, yeah. yes that's the name <laughs> is doing um, uh, but yeah, I, uh, but then I yeah what, what's the, what's the, the story with the with the silver court being in germany then yeah, well, okay. So what are the... Can someone fill me in? What are the connections to Germany other than uh, the the Silver Corp USA guy uh, talking about Germany as his fatherland? Wait, what? Oh, nice. Can someone fill me in? <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> I believe... All right, so I'll, okay. I'll share the evidence. Yeah, please. What, what I have in yeah. front of me, uh, which is his Instagram, Silver Corp USA. <laughs> Uh, Dude, this guy is a fucking king. At it. yeah, it's it's such a good Instagram account, and the website is literally like if you had like a stock website of a PMC. It is it is so bad, and there's like a motivational video at the beginning of like why we do this. Oh, that's beautiful. And it's like they did security at that like Live Aid thing for Venezuela last year or two years no ago. No way! Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, it is pretty much just that. It's like like so they've oh. been they've been like deeply involved in this for like like kind of some time, but like so it's definitely not able to you know overthrow the government so, with like you, you and four of your best friends. So you think they're idealists? <laughs> like they saw it and they were like oh my god this touched me so much and, and i really have to start a coup <laughs> yeah it's like that like that like fake discourse around the berlin wall of like rock music brought down the berlin yeah. wall it's like no uh, fucking didn't excuse me david hasselhoff single-handedly <laughs> <laughs> we all know this to be true in our hearts but yeah uh, so he just has a uh, Several posts of him, like in a suit with sunglasses on, with captions like "Grind," a man who never <laughs> gives no hostage to fortune. I don't know what that means. <laughs> Me neither. Um, Can somebody one, share his Instagram handle? Like what? Uh, is yeah, it? it's it's Silver Corp. So Silver Corp USA. That's easy. Um, is there like underscores or anything? No underscores. Okay. Oh, nice. So the one in question is. Um, sick videos too like maybe a little bit down it's him in like uh, uh he has a backpack on hat on scarf looks like it's kind of cold uh it's tagged in stuttgart germany um 
there's a Sparkasa building behind him, and the caption's just, The Fatherland. Oh, damn. Oh, I've seen this picture. Wow. But why would he choose Sparkasa? Yeah, I know. I'm more of a folks yeah, kind of person myself. <laughs> yeah. Well, all the, all the angles on his photos, they're actually like the camera on my computer. They're all kind of like unflattering from below. Um, <laughs> and he's kind of making the same like stoic look. Wait, can we just like look at his fucking hashtags? Every hashtag is hashtag active shooter. I know. Yeah. I hope yes. he didn't do that. <laughs> no, no. And why school? No, okay, wait, wait, wait. Why no. hashtag active shooter training and then hashtag school? That is kind of irritating. Oh, oh. <laughs> so I, I guess he's doing active shooter trainings, like cool. for for schools. But he, he, he has all right. So he just has like twenty hashtags in all his posts. But he has hashtag active shooter training and a- hashtag active shooter, which to me <laughs> would be a little confusing. And then hashtag um. school. Can <laughs> hmm. I keep him on their toes? Which one am I? Am I the trainer? Or am I the active shooter? <laughs> I mean, he does run like a mercenary company. He can be both. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> <laughs> also hashtag POTUS security um, hashtag tier one that's a that's, gotta have that in that's there that's a classic yeah. <laughs> lest anyone think you're not a tier one operator <laughs> I, well, I didn't think so until I saw the hashtag what well. like um, I the thing it, this this is like kind of always one of those things that um, I think that we forget about within like the discourse of how like the US military runs now that then a lot of it is outsourced and I think that we assume that then a lot of it is like these like you know well-oiled machines of like things that like Blackwater existed and whatnot, who just mm-hmm. these like monst- you know just evil monstrosities that just get these government checks left and right. But the majority of them are this, like these like quote unquote security companies that then have these generic ass websites run by like one dipshit who had like three weeks of Green Beret training. Mm-hmm. And then mm. was like, well, fuck it. Like, I couldn't make it in the military. So now I'm just going to do a security company, in quotes. Um, and they just, I mean, like, uh, what is it? The fucking, uh, 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 the Dakota Access Pipeline, like, hired a bunch of these uh, PMCs to do security for them. Yeah. yeah. They were, no, like, I mean, they got in, like, a bunch of trouble, you know, the company hiring, hiring them. But, too, just for, like, that they don't. Like, okay, police are bad, obviously, and police behave horribly. These groups are just a bunch of idiots who are trigger happy and Mm. are being used in a lot of, like, policing measures in the United States. A perfect example is after Hurricane Katrina. They were just, like, there were more fucking PMCs on the ground than there were, like, actual fucking police officers. I... this whole time, I thought you were talking about professional managerial class. Um, <laughs> oh, it is. They are. They are like it. Literally, is that? Uh, are you saying he's not professional? Um, so a I, I assume he's a private military project. company. Oh, a I think he's a project, military. or he's a project management consultant. Or that. honestly, I just thought Nick was misusing the term PMC for like five <laughs> minutes. But since it's your podcast, I didn't want to say anything. Yeah. I I really like this energy, Lord. When we're wrong, don't correct us. It's our podcast. <laughs> No, private military. Well, it would have been really embarrassing, you know, especially the longer <laughs> it went on. Um, I like that. Like, there is a certain poetry to to these Instagram posts. Um, I'm just going to p- pick one in particular. Um, there's a photo of like a military helicopter, and he appears to be in another military hel- helicopter, mm-hmm. like behind it, and they're above <laughs> um, just sand. So I don't know where they are. <laughs> no tag. Uh, and yeah. the caption is. Nothing like, being, place. nothing like being in the company of monsters, hell-bent on causing serious animosity. Wait, what? what? I don't know what that means. I think he's Are just, you talking about when you get sand on your toe? Is he referring to himself? I think just 
he just like use like like the way I, honestly like I think it's kind of beautiful the way you just kind of use words like PMC in your own way. Yeah. Uh, I'm causing <laughs> it serious means a animosity. real thing. <laughs> private military contractor, you idiot. God. <laughs> Uh, hashtag yeah, active I, shooter I, training hashtag active shooter. I, I do like this idea it, it's a very like american idea of these kind of people who would be in these companies who are just like yeah people who live in places where there are sand are all monsters you know like iran iraq malibu beach all of them monsters <laughs> so yeah it's great you just show a picture of sand and everyone's scared he makes a podcast did you know that or at least he's on a podcast Oh. A very, a oh, very no. raw podcast with his brother Mark, whatever that means. Oh, yeah, I, saw that. <laughs> I love my brother, my brother and me. They're great. <laughs> Welcome to your weekly Corner Spatey. Uh, we have the full gang here, finally, I think, for the first time in a while, mm-hmm. uh, since mm. we've moved into the void of the internet. Um, mm. So it's myself, Nick, joined by Kieran. Hey, hey. Rob. What's up? Yulia. Hi. And we have a special guest, uh, all the way also from the internet, uh, <laughs> Lauren Ballhorn, or a.k.a. at Frau Ballhorn on Twitter. Uh, how, how, how are you doing, Lauren? I'm uh, pretty good. A little thrown off by a.k.a. at Frau Ballhorn, but yeah, I guess that's me. That is you, <laughs> yes. That's your Twitter handle. That is all I know you by. Is as, mm. as, Since yeah. uh, we, have, we have been confined to, to uh, you know social distancing and not going outside um, yeah, yeah, I don't know this everyone post-apocalyptic, this Mad Max word your Twitter handle is worth your weight in gold <laughs> but yeah so uh, we're uh, you know coming off of what was a, a federal holiday yesterday in Germany only a one time thing and I'm quite upset about that Ooh, it's not only, a federal holiday yeah only in Berlin only in Berlin oh, what yep. God damn yeah. it. I've already the only state this up, that matters. <laughs> so it was only in Berlin yeah. and only because it was the 75th anniversary. Yeah. yeah, I know. Okay, well, that's dumb then. Wow. Why are we even talking about this then? Wait, what? Well, I, <laughs> I, like the, <laughs> I like the general idea because I think, what, three years ago, um, there was a holiday because it was the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Exactly. Martin. <laughs> Martin. <laughs> which, which makes me feel very special. Like, they should do more random, like, it's the... Only on the like 90th anniversary of this event is there a holiday. <laughs> like, on the 73, uh, seven, ah, shit, I can't do numbers. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I mean, any excuse for for paid holidays is a good excuse, and you know, it gets it keeps it keeps the loose, keeps you on your feet. It's kind of exciting. <laughs> I mean, Germany has like mostly only church holidays, so that's all that we do, yeah. except for first uh, of May. Probably the rest is all uh, church related, so I think we well, need unification days. And, uh, and now we have one, the right? uh, Frauenkampftag. I mean, that's new. I uh, really like that one. That's it. <laughs> Big fan. <laughs> and I should. I think we should go for but, more. <laughs> but yeah, more holidays. Yeah. So yesterday, the eighth of May was, I guess, only a holiday in Berlin mm-hmm. for the end of World War mm-hmm. Two and the you know defeat of the Nazis, and. You know, big day. You know, big big event in history. Kind of, uh, you know, shaped the entire 20th century, more or less. Kind of. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, yeah, and and the thing I was just genuinely so surprised about is that like, okay, one, you know, holiday in Germany, everything's closed, normal, like normalcy. Uh, not really getting to celebrate it because of quarantine also mm-hmm. was not very fun. But I, yeah. No, what were you gonna say, Yulia? <laughs> it's just, this is always kind of hard with the uh, with the um, not seeing. I know, I know. I'm sorry. No, I went to the monument, the Soviet monument, because normally hmm. it is where people gather to celebrate this day, if it's a holiday or not. Um, it's always a funny, funny gathering of different kind of laughters, <laughs> uh, fractions. Um, so you can see everyone basically. You 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 have mm. some Stalinists. You have some a lot of Trotskyists. <laughs> no, actually not more Stalinists than Trotskyists. What am I, am I saying? You have anti-fascist groups. You have people, old people. <laughs> the 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 uh, loads of Russian. Yeah. Families. Oh my God! There was a kid yeah. that was completely dressed in an Adidas sweatsuit. Like a a toddler, King. a toddler. It was, was amazing. It, was it, so cool. It was, was it in the like Saint George uh, banner colors? No, too? it was black and white. So but sick. I saw a lot of oh. people with a uh, Saint George banner, actually. Okay, cool. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But that kid w- was impressive. <laughs> <laughs> and this year there was supposed to be like a bigger, of course, event because it's the seventy uh, fifth anniversary. But since we're all kind of like asked to stay at home um that mm. didn't happen but i still saw like there were a lot of flowers a lot of rote nelken um wait red carnation is that the word for nelken mm-hmm. thank you <laughs> and yeah i mean a lot of uh nice russian music was played i was a big fan of that um and in the beginning like when you enter the park you you have the uh, four flags of france great britain the Soviet Union and America. Yeah. So far, the atmosphere. <laughs> oh, and, and there was a, a lady dressed in a pink costume with uh, high heels. And she was sitting in a chair with a laptop. And she was interviewing this guy. And it might have been Russia today. In front yeah. of the monument. That's it. <laughs> um. Oh, that's nice. They were talking for like two hours or something. That was a long interview. Spent a long time at the monument. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. I mean, the weather was nice. (laughs) I think think that's officially a podcast when it's a two-hour interview. Probably. Russia Today (laughs) podcast live from... Yeah, sorry, that just reminded me recently I saw someone um, walking down my street streaming like Netflix on their laptop. Wow. Um, <laughs> with their laptop in front of them while they were walking. Wait, yeah, it's great. I love it. I love that energy. But yeah, so there's there's usually festivities. Mm-hmm. I was I was at the Soviet Memorial last year just by chance because my family was visiting. I was just like, here's the memorial. And then there was just like, why is everyone here placing flowers down? And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, history. History yeah. happened. Um, so yeah, that's it is usually a big mm-hmm. event. So that's always good, I guess. I, I'm still blown away that the rest of Germany does not celebrate this. Well, just, it's, not, it's just not a holiday, but it's not a holiday most of the time anyway. Mm. It's like a day of commemoration maybe, mm. but you still have to go to work. Even though you go to work in East Germany, I disappointingly found out. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Like, except for on like 
couple years, they gave people time off because it was like the 40th or whatever. But yeah, it was a Varric tag. <laughs> it was playing a it wild and loose with the <laughs> just another <laughs> playing it wild and loose with the numbers. Yeah, just another vector in Germany. Yeah, why is that? Like, why do we like choose random years as the forty seventy five? I mean, it it makes sense in that sense of like the, the every five and ten. Well, but it's not every five and ten. It's just randomly. It's like no, a, no it is. It w- no, it's not like oh, the thirty seventh anniversary is going to be a big. I mean, one. okay, yeah, true. <laughs> they should do that though. Yeah, it's, it's decades <laughs> and and because like uh, what is it? Russia had a massive military parade on the seventieth, and then they're mm. going to have. They had. They were supposed. They're supposed to have one today. Yeah. Um, I think it's going to still happen, but there is not going to be as many people coming obviously only like, yeah Mo- moscow is like really yeah, bad only at the moment for coronavirus qr code then you can <laughs> probably <laughs> go outside <laughs> There's, i, the coronavirus I think, I think belarus is still going forward with the normal yeah. celebration you can always count on belarus yeah, my room, yeah. my, my 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 flatmates from Belarus, and just just told me that then like the country is just ignoring coronavirus entirely. They are. It's so good. <laughs> like, Lukashenko just keeps going on TV, man. Like everything's normal. It's like, why do you keep coming on TV? Then? Everything's I, like, normal. <laughs> I like doing the secret for coronavirus. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, but, so I would say that um, I, this happens every year, but perhaps because of quarantine, mm. uh, I didn't really go outside yesterday. The more of the celebration, or we should say remembrance, or um, we can say admonishment, happened online and on Twitter this year. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of how, and, and maybe that um, the medium of Twitter allows for, um, let's say, people to uh, litigate over what this uh, holiday actually means. Mm-hmm. What? 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 In one corner, what do we have? What do we have? Well, who's, who's arguing what? I mean, you have just like the. I mean, there was someone compiled on Twitter um, at at History Ned. This person's name is I don't know, but they found like the uh, like for people who don't speak German, they compiled the different Twitter reactions from the different major parties in Germany, mm-hmm. and so like the CDU, CSU, SPD kind of had that like like uh, just. Actually, no, the CDU was different than the SPDs were just like they neutrally just kind of go and say that then like that the Second World War ended was bad and that then like today should be like a remembrance of the end of World War Two. Kind of not really like, a, you know, uh, driving in too much, but like the anti-fascism, like some other parties, you know, like SPD talks about like the, you know, Tag der Befreiung and that then like, you know, just fascism, like like they, they did Nie wieder Fascismus. So mm. never again, you know, fascism. Mm. Um, and it's like specifically mentioned the Holocaust in their post as well. Mm. Dilinka also, like not surprisingly, you know, uh, laid into about, you know, how, how um, you know, uh, the, uh, 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 like the Nie Vida fascismus thing again of how, you know, important this is for them you know that they, they, they see it as the liberation of germany which yeah. i think is also like very specific where some other parties will just say it's the end of nazism yeah it's a big uh, difference just real quick uh, just i i mm. assume that every like that our listeners are very uh you know uh uh educated about this topic but at the same time we didn't mm. give like any uh like what this day actually means because like when we discuss oh, the yeah, different, that would be a good idea. yeah, when we discuss the different, <laughs> yes. you know, ways of uh, commemorating it, 
maybe we should say like what actually happened that day. Because yeah. you know there well, are different should, yeah. different uh, victories during World War Two. There are different you know capitulations, different you know so. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, I guess just like just on a, on a, on a quick finish with how these different parties interacted, I guess we can like also then go from there mm -hmm. to then transition. Okay, to that. sorry, I didn't so, want yeah, to interrupt. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> you're you're absolutely right. So the um, the Greens just go out and say that then like if you don't support the eighth of May, like like. You're fucked. Like <laughs> you're, you're, <laughs> you're fucked. <laughs> no, literally, it said "Wer den Achtemai nicht nicht würdigt hat verloren." So it's uh. like you know, uh, who doesn't celebrate the eighth of May loses. And, That's so which weird. Is, huh? <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's a very weird. It's a very weird thing, but nonetheless, it's, <laughs> it's some green politician in a suit holding a knife, <laughs> like a flip blade. <laughs> Um, but yeah, but all in all, every major German party at least has has dealt with the fact that then that the 8th of May, one way or another, should be seen as uh, either the end of Nazism or as just a general celebration. The AFD just went <laughs> buck wild, though, because, you know, this is uh, they've they've slowly like the mask has been falling off for them. And just a bunch of their party members just trying to make this into like a thing about then like, uh, hey, actually, this is bad because socialism took over <laughs> and how this was like i think alexander gaulan literally like was quoted the other day being like this is a day that's bad for germany because germany shrunk in size oh here we like go. yeah and then <laughs> someone managed to make this into oh a thing God. about like I, didn't. Oh. I love the position that at like oh god damn it i really hope afd just give him like 20 more minutes this becomes a firmly anti-silesian hot like party <laughs> And it starts going after like Pomerania and stuff. Yeah. This is ah yes. And then some members, like like the like the AfD in uh, EU Parliament, just ignored the question of the eighth of May and just talked about like gay Muslim Azubewerber. Wait, what? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> like so, uh, it's it's it is it is genuinely wild that then first off okay like do i think that some parties like the CDU i think just kind of half assed their way in their fucking tweet um that's just my own personal opinion about that but just completely <laughs> ignoring the date or just completely being of the opinion that then like oh yeah uh this is actually bad like they're not even like they're not even doing like the 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 you know, general reflection that you're supposed to do as Germans now. They've just, like, I I don't know. I don't, I, I see this just firmly as being, like, then, like, they've cemented themselves so far right-wing to begin with that they're just going with as much, you know, playing into their Nazism as they can without just, like, openly saying it, mm. you know? But... Right, with uh, with all those confusing ideas about what this day actually <laughs> <is> means, it? <laughs> uh, uh, it, it's something about being against the Muslims, as far as I understand. Uh, the, the gay Muslims, uh, specifically. Ah, uh, right. Yeah, okay, wait, okay, wait, okay, wait. Was the AFD for or against gay Muslims? I don't know. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, it just said, it just said, it said uh, uh, queer Muslima, uh, Muslimische uh, Asylbeantragte or whatever. Like. Okay. And then it was a question mark, and then had a member oh. of the AFD with their arms crossed, and it was like a discussion that they were going to have <laughs> on on like whatever, like uh, whatever the, the Nazi version of Instagram Zoom Live God. is. Uh, right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Reddit live stream, I think. But the uh, um, HN live. <laughs> HN has live stream function now. It's great. Um, but yeah, okay. So what does this day mean for all the um, the the beautiful idiots listening on this call, um, like me, for example? 
who wants? I think I actually we turn it to our to our guest, yeah. Lauren. Actually, you might be uh, very good at explaining this. <laughs> um. Well, I was. I mean, I was thinking just now uh, when when Nick was talking about the IFD. I mean, the IFD is really just representing the mainstream of German conservatism thirty or forty years ago, and it's really only. Uh, I mean, it's only like in the last twenty or thirty years that there's kind of the mainstream consensus has been established that this is a day of celebration and of thanks and whatever to the allies and not a day of defeat and shame. But I think, I mean, yeah, like the first time, the first time it was ever officially acknowledged as like a holiday by the Western government was not until like 1970. Um, And the CDU was still opposed to it, like well into the eighties, I think. Um, Mm. But the, I mean, I think the question that it throws up is I was thinking about this before the show is, is it, I mean, I don't really give a shit about these questions, but like, uh, can you really, <laughs> can you really describe it as liberation? Because it almost implies, it, it implies that like the Germans were occupied by Nazism rather than like being just the German government, which happened to be Nazi. Um, yeah. so I don't know. I think I, I, I'm not really that interested in, in, or I don't, I don't really have a, uh, what's the word? Like, uh. I don't have a stake in these kinds of debates because, like, I'm from Wisconsin, and uh, my German ancestors came after the genocide in that country. So we're kind of like, you know, um, but I, I don't know if you really should call it or if it should be considered liberation um, because of that fact. But I think it's definitively like the celebration of the Red Army defeating Germany. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think more than anything else, but that's also something that's. Also, as Liberation Day becomes accepted as like a mainstream holiday, the memory of the Red Army as the decisive factor also recedes into the background. So, I don't know, it's like a two-sided development. Yeah, I just think it marks the Red Army and all of the things they did. (laughs) 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 Without getting too specific, you know. Um, but yeah, like I, I think every time around this year is when that uh, that like graph goes viral again. Of uh, I think it's the population of France getting mm-hmm. surveyed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of like who was most responsible oh, yeah. for uh, the end of or for defeating the Germans in World yeah. War Two, and Russian. like immediately after it's the Russians, <laughs> and now like. What, 75 years later of having to watch something like American Sniper, because that's being considered for an Oscar for some reason, um, it's like, oh yeah, the Americans did it. (laughs) Well, I think think the major movie that probably changed that perception is Saving Private Ryan. Oh, absolutely. Mm. I was thinking about that this morning, and I did tweet about it, is that then, like, you can you can use the movie of Saving Private Ryan and Band of Brothers to describe the American discord, discourse, not discord, uh, towards <laughs> World War II because of how, like, I was thinking, like, I, I don't know if everyone here has seen Band of Brothers, but the last two episodes deal with then, like, they liberate a concentration camp, and then they have to then deal with the surrendering Nazis. And... The way, like, remember, Band of Brothers came out in 2000 or 2001 or something like that, made by, uh, you know, Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg, so, you know, good Hollywood liberals. Um, but even the perspective in that movie, or the, the you know, HBO miniseries, is that then, like, the Nazis and the German soldiers are something removed from the fact 
of what the ideology of Nazism was. And that, to me, is like incredibly perverted because in the ninth episode, they go and they liberate the concentration camp. They're like, look at how horrible this is. And then in the next episode, a German officer surrenders to them, and he's this, you know, German aristocratic fancy boy. And they, like, you know, they, and then they start, you know, realize, like, he's like, oh, yes, I've been to France. I've been here. I've been there, North Africa. It was beautiful. I loved my time in the military. Oh, wow. And the American soldiers, like, respect him. And they're like, damn, this guy's like a pimp. And the Where American military. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the, uh, the American military, like, had, like, there was a bunch of things, a bunch of memoirs being, like, like, suggested from like from former ss officers being just like you know pumped through like you know the american like leadership Mm. being like you should read this like the nazis knew what they were doing and i feel that that discourse of has has, like really like one of course that the americans won world war ii single-handedly without a single Mm. russian life lost is how a lot of americans or if they know about the the uh you know the Russian thing. Let's talk about like, well, the Red Army. They were brutal, and this and that and that. With with just like you know, completely removing uh, any historiography of it. Any you know, just the idea of how brutal World War Two just was as a whole mm-hmm. for all sides, and just making it into this like parade for the Americans. But I really like. I was really reflecting about that moment specifically. And to be very fair, there is one dude in the episode who then goes and like starts like hunting down old SS officers who's cool. But no, everyone else is then in the show telling him how like that's bad and immoral, <laughs> and that is genuinely, I think, like the American, like so, the American dominated view of of how we view this day so the, is that there is like mm. a separation between the German state and Nazism, and there shouldn't be because it was yeah. the German state. So the, it was the sorry. Oh yeah, sorry. No, I just wanted to like give the overall information that I mean the situation was that that the first capitulation was signed in rhymes. Uh, rhymes. Sorry, I'm, I don't know why I say rhymes. <laughs> rhymes. Um, <laughs> uh, which I mean that was uh, on the seventh of May, but German uh, troops um, um, continued um, combat action against the Soviet, um, the Red Army. In especially like in in front of Berlin, so in like or in Berlin in like Karlshorst and and shit like that. So like, um, even though there there was a cap- uh, capitulation paper signed in Reims, it wasn't really the capitulation of the Red Army uh, of of the like of the all of the troops of the Wehrmacht. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so on the eighth of May, they gathered gathered in Berlin Karlshorst, which is now known as the Deutsch Russisches Museum. Um, to actually, you know, sign the papers of the Kapitulation der Wehrmacht and stop any kind of combat action. Um, right. And since we have different time zones in Moscow, it was already the next day. That's why they celebrate the 9th of May, by the way. Uh, yeah. I did not know that. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's kind of adorable for like what was effectively just a massive bloodbath atrocity. But that little fact is really adorable. So in my opinion, it should be a three-day celebration. <laughs> <laughs> three days off. Monday in lieu of Saturday off. But yeah, actually, like afterwards, like Lauren already said, it wasn't really a thing in the Bundesrepublik ever. As far as I know, mm. until like the seventies or eighties, uh, and I think never talked about Tag der Befreiung in that sense. Uh, like I think the famous thing was uh, Weizsäcker, Richard von Weizsäcker, said on the fortieth um, anniversary that 
the 8th of May is in fact uh, Tag der Befreiung, so Liberation Day. I think that is the first time right. this kind of, um, yeah, this name for this day was established in, in the public discourse. So, Was there any kind of, like, what was the pressure that was, like, making that happen? Did people in the West want it? Was it, like, an, uh, older people who were a bit more curmudgeonly, like, did they just fade out? Did their voices fade away from this discourse? Or what happened to, like, change that? Or is there any big event that well, caused think, that to happen? I think uh, old Nazis dying yeah. over yeah. time. Yes. You know, like, <laughs> yes. True, although Nazis... I mean, especially the, the West German administrations yeah. in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. Like, it would have been too uncomfortable because you didn't want to bring up how many ex-Nazis were in the government. Exactly. Um, and so Willy Brandt mm. could, like, do that authentically or like you know believably because he had been a resistance fighter mm -hmm. so he Rich. then uh, was you know he was like a good chancellor to initiate that transition but in the 50s and 60s it would it was just uncomfortable to one to point out that really the <laughs> russians had liberated germany and two to point out how many people in the government were on the other side yeah. at the we time. Can't, we can't celebrate Liberation Day. It makes all my friends sad. <laughs> yeah, actually, it was actually Willy Brandt who did the first official um, like uh, governmental statement for this day. Yeah, around the same time when he was like going to Auschwitz. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, initiating like a major reorientation in West German foreign policy. But before that, um, he, like the Nazi period just wasn't it was just not really talked about that much yeah exactly yeah it, it actually it is the 70s in general where a lot of this like um, Aufarbeitung uh, give me an English word for that please there's not really a good word for that yeah that's true um, okay reflection, reflection or whatever yeah reflection and kind of like okay. digging into like who was a Nazi because as I know only okay this is a weird anecdote but from from FU Freie Universität that a lot of the Germanistic uh, professors so like German language and literature studies hmm. um, they were actually like working under the Nazi government and doing like some I don't know whatever Germanistic research for Nazis um, nice and a lot of that wasn't even like no nobody talked about that and in the 70s there was a book published with the names of the professors and lecturers and everyone like in Gesellschaftswissenschaften or in like um, social sciences that was active under the Nazis and working for the Nazi regime. And that was the time where this book was rele uh, released. You know, so there was this weird um, moment where Adorno was visiting... Oh my God, uh, sorry. <laughs> was it's fine, he comes know, up. Visiting FU and... Um, And there was this guy, Emmerich, I think was his name. And he, mm. was, uh, he, he was supposed to give the introduction speech, you know. And he was a friend of Peter Sondi, which was the founder of the Comparative Literature Department, um, who was a Hungarian um, Jewish person uh, who fled uh, from a, or who was brought out from a concentration camp because um, his father was Leopold Sondi, who was a psychologist. And Uh, and a psychology professor and somehow Switzerland was interested in that so he was bought yeah. out of a concentration camp um, by Switzerland and then went to Germany, actually like learned German and went to Germany and wanted to be a Germanistic professor but then uh, the FU gave him this literature uh, competitive literature um, um, Lehrstuhl department 
because mm. they didn't want him to feel kind of like he has to work with Nazis, you know, <laughs> because Germanistic <laughs> was still very like full of former Nazis and Nazi yeah, 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 yeah. people that worked under the Nazi regime. So this guy that was supposed to like hold the speech for Adorno said that he was sick because this book came out or something was leaked that he was actually like working with the Nazis. So he, Peter Zondi instead instead of that, Peter Zondi gave the speech as far as I know. I could be wrong with that, but yeah, he kind mm. of like said, oh, I, I can't introduce Adorno. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm a former Nazi. Right. Well, <laughs> kudos for honesty. <laughs> I mean, but he I mean, didn't say that, of course. It, like, <laughs> but, I mean, there's not, I mean, not to, like, defend, uh, or not to sound like I'm defending former Nazis, but if you were going to bring, like, if you're an occupying power mm -hmm. in Germany after World War II, and your geopolitical interest is to normalize society as fast as possible and then bring the occupied territory under the wing of your mm -hmm. alliance... You can't really spend too much time prosecuting former Nazis because you're going to take out a big chunk of the professional class that yeah. keeps society running. And so you just kind of had to, like from a purely functional perspective, uh, there wasn't really any other option. You know? Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, the, the, the American or the Western allies, let's say, like, they aren't doing this for like you know, mustache twirling, yeah, yeah, evil machinalian reasons. Yeah. It's, it's, there's a, there's a benefit, there's a cost benefit analysis to doing this. Yeah. And in, yeah. in East Germany, they could just kind of, you know, they could claim the mantle of the red army and, but also not talk about the Nazis among their own ranks. Yeah. Um, mm. I mean, maybe, there, maybe there weren't even that many Nazis, but like, you know, a large chunk of the, you know, the sort of normal population certainly, had some brown sympathies at some point or another, but it's just like, yeah, what were you going to do? Um, and I think only, only in the process of that generation growing older and a younger generation coming up and asking those questions, could mm -hmm. those yeah. issues be discussed? I think too, that in the sense of like, uh, I just briefly kind of was, was, was brought up in passing of that, um, this is me nerding out over foreign policy, but like the end of World War II also serves as a like dismantling of empire as well too. Like empire, like imperialism that we know today is not in any way the way that it is before 1933. And I think that like exactly the point that Lauren brought up, brought up is that then yeah, like the United States and the Soviet Union had massive influence in reconstruction of Europe, but the way that then that these you know. Uh, um, that this influence looks like is also incredibly ingenious in the sense of how like, okay, the United States eventually starts forming NATO after the Greek civil war and whatnot and the Italian, you know, operation Gladio fun stuff. But the idea then of making your influence, you know, your global influence not be, you know, complete, like, you know, boot on your neck imperialism comes out of exactly this. And this dealing with the Nazis was like the, one of the very first steps for both sides of that of of you know the, the the US and the Soviet Union and it is like it is a lot of um like a lot of liberals defend it for this reason of like why then you know there's been so much peace in Europe this and that and that so on so on and so forth because hmm. there has not been a chance for a traditional style of imperialism to come out of that 
you know, since. I mean, remember, too, also, like, Great Britain, like, lost all their imperial holdings after World War One, lost the rest of yep. them after World War Two. Same thing with France. Like, Indochina completely collapsed after, um, you know, with the rise of, of course, it then comes from, you know, the... the uh, um, the anti-imperialist movements mm-hmm. of that were kickstarted by kicking out the Japanese and whatnot. So, like World War II, not only just like in the sense of that, then it is like a defeat of Nazism. It, it is like a complete rethinking of how the world, in terms of foreign policy, ran for better or worse. I mean, like, I mean, yeah, yeah. That's why. I would, sorry, I would. I would just be remiss yeah. to say uh, to imply that uh, France didn't just uh, let it go without a fight if we look at Algeria or No, I mean, yeah. if, of course yeah. not. It's also on the exact same day, literally May 8th. Okay, you can have then, it back. Yeah, no, 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 no. Sorry, I, don't, I don't mean in the sense, I do not mean, of course, I do not mean in the sense that like imperialism just like disappeared. You fucked up, Nick. I done, <laughs> I done, I done goofed. No, but I mean like the the way of thinking of then, like, I mean, obviously France still had holdings in, in North Africa um, they st- and Mali, I mean, they even still today, have, is still... Uh, yeah, they still I have mean, overseas... Like, uh, 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 what's it called? Overseas departments. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah like yeah, yeah. Uh, Reunion, like half the like Caribbean, New Caledonia. I'm talking about in the sense of then the no. formation specifically then of that of like the United States coming up as the world international superpower. And yes, there is U.S. imperialism, like I'm not trying to say that imperialism doesn't exist after World War II. I'm not especially <laughs> not saying that U.S. imperialism does not exist. It sure it does. But there's a massive rethinking of imperialism to then make it yeah. not look like imperialism yeah. that we have to, like, you have a massive just about face of then what it looks like. Like, remember, we've talked about this before, about, like, NATO functions in this bizarre sense that, like, nations have some sort, like, like sovereignty over their own militaries while then being part of a bigger military project. Like, you did not have that really before World War II, and you did, like, you didn't, like, you could argue that then it's a part of the Cold War more so than World War II, but still, mm. nonetheless, is that how do you then influence then these countries without having to then appear as an imperial force like the British, like the Nazis did, you know, with yeah, their yeah, just, you yeah, know, yeah. steamrolling through everything of Europe. And it's it's something just simply to reflect on. You know, like, I mean, obviously be a, like to look at it critically. I'm not saying like, oh, imperialism's over. Yeah, I think the comparison between like France in the in the 50s and stuff is like that's a existing imperial power in decline rather than America, which is a rising imperial power being like, OK, how do we do this without fucking up like France did? Yeah, is basically. Yeah, I think you're right. There was like, I think if World War Two happened like a hundred years earlier, America would have annexed West Germany or something. Like it would become this weird state where they shuffle all the Pennsylvania Dutch into. Yeah. Um, I mean, even, what a wild time that would be. Even Trump. Yeah, I mean, but like, think about it though. Even Trump, literally, when he was running for president in 2016, like asked this question because a lot of Americans just don't like reflect on this. Like, you know, hey, you know, whenever we win a war, why don't we take stuff back? We used to do it that way. You know, a lot of people don't realize that then there's this sense of like imperialism had to like rethink itself because a lot of the time it's like why don't we just like take everything you the know? same question yeah. uh near well but it was also a... <laughs> <laughs> oh, go on lauren yeah sorry go well just i think the sheer level of material destruction yeah. made mm. traditional imperialism unsustainable for the european powers and the united states wasn't necessarily interested in taking up that role like yeah. uh and it also i mean you know there's I think there is something to be said about the, like, the Allies were, 
under like at in some way had to like talk the talk and walk the walk of like human rights and democracy, even if only on a superficial level. You couldn't really go from something like the defeat of fascism to like more fascism. Reins, re, well, reinstalling the world order of the 19th century because I think yeah. there was an understanding among elites that like okay the way we were doing things didn't work anymore and also we can't afford to do it that way anymore anyway yeah, yeah. i but, mean britain uh, literally bankrupted itself trying to like save greece as like a british protectorate like that is a thing that then everyone forgets about which is really funny to me and the us obviously took it over because yeah like there was the us had no infrastructural damage you know and no economic infrastructural damage towards like that happened from world war 2 that's how they ended up also as like the economic superpower on top of like the influence thing because they could just mm-hmm. simply, like, they didn't have to completely, you know, rebuild their economies. Like, mm-hmm. this, like is a, this is, this is, I really do, like, the, the tactic worked incredibly well, at least, like, almost immediately after World War II, because uh, I've been reading a bit about, like, Japanese resistance after World War II, like, from, from the left perspective, and I was like, as soon as the Japanese brought up that this was, like, a, a form of imperialism, we are being occupied by the United States, even though... I feel like their occupation was a bit more um, in your face than what was happening in Germany. Maybe I'm wrong. But, like, they all just, like, they were so easily dismissed as cranks, being mm-hmm. like, this isn't imperialism. No, like, what happened in Africa in the 1800s was imperialism. This is, this is, no, this is fine. This is normal. What are you talking about, you crazy person? Well, I mean, I don't know. I kind of would give the, I wouldn't give the Americans a free pass, but I, I guess I don't really <laughs> sympathize with the, uh, the Japanese in 1945, <laughs> yeah. either. <laughs> no, no, of course not. Like, Adam Bomb was not cool, but I don't know. <laughs> I, this, is, this is mostly from the Japanese Communist Party, who were also not a fan of, like, Hirohito mm. or anything like that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just imagining this, like, a weird mix-up of just, like, uh, uh, you're, like, a, a communist, but you're just, like, also really pro-Japanese monarchism at the same time. <laughs> that exists somewhere on the internet. I know it does. Why am oh, I yeah, even yeah, questioning yeah. that? <laughs> but I think that, too, like, it's also, like, you know, with then discussing, like, the complexities of this as well, there's also, like, my absolute favorite reaction towards all of this came mm. from one of the redacteurs from... Uh, oh, FAZ. Oh, my God. <laughs> that, like, and I think that that, like, like there is like a general just like a just unwillingness to accept then like that the Soviet Union did something good mm-hmm. and that you know just uh uh, uh Mr. Uh, Philip Plickert which okay cool um cool name um uh, like after so pretty much I'm not going to you know quote him word for word but just saying that then he's saying that then like the 8th of May isn't um you know, it isn't the, the the day of liberation. It's the 9th of November, 1989. Yeah. And that to me is just like that, Ooh. like, I, I, I don't know where to go to that. I saw that and was just genuinely mad, of course, at first. And I do like, I do genuinely think that there is like a, a massive false equivalence that then a lot of liberals in Germany try to do of being like, yep, mm-hmm. um, yeah, the Nazis were bad, but communism was just as bad because we mm. saw this we see this then you know in, in 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 the baltic countries you know we've talked about this before in the show about how like um they would they they are much friendlier to remembering the nazis in their history oh, yeah. than they are to remembering then um the uh the ussr yeah. uh for you know reasons i'm not we're not going to go into it <laughs> for but, nationalistic reasons <laughs> yeah 
But it is like, and I, 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 I find it really interesting how like German, like not even just German liberals, but I think a lot of Western liberals too kind of play into that, not really realizing how that also like strengthens those arguments mm-hmm. of, you know, uh, these this massive false equivalence of, when, you know, yeah, oh, yeah go on, Julia. of yeah the GDR and uh, Nazi Germany, yeah, yeah definitely. There, uh, I don't see the yeah. But uh, the thing I've been to the DDR museum. It is way more fun than any other <laughs> exactly. like World War II Nazi museum. <laughs> <That is> true. <laughs> Topographie des Terrors is uh, not as amusing as the no. GDR museum. Like the VR simulator of driving. Oh, a I know. I've been there. Um, <laughs> but this is actually this actually gives a different connotation to Liberation Day, Tag der Befreiung, because this kind of says kind of says okay these were external forces that occupied us like in the gdi was the red army it was the soviet union it was the russians that did that to us like poland uses that a lot saying like oh we never decided Mm -hmm. to be communist we didn't have our own communist state or something we didn't want this like europe left us alone because after world war ii they left us alone already in world war ii and then afterwards they left us alone when when we were forced to be communist you know and this Mm -hmm. actually gives the Tag der, uh, der Befreiung, uh, this co- connotation, and Lauren was talking about that like, before saying, like, how is that a day of liberation in the sense of making external forces responsible for what happened here, you know? Saying, like, oh, first the Nazis came, I don't know, from Austria, maybe? <laughs> I don't know who we blame for that. <laughs> um, <laughs> And they occupied us and they turned us all into Nazi Germany. And we, like, Germans didn't even want that. It kind of sounds like that, you know. And then the Russians came and turned uh, the GDR into uh, the Red Paradise, uh, you know. And and only Mm. after that, when the war came down, we were finally free and ready to write a new... You know, a narrative for our nation, which is which is what Poland is doing. But you know, Germany kind of yes. like works towards that uh, sometimes as well by not speaking about these things and making it making it a thing, saying, "Oh, we didn't know about that." You know, this like typical thing, like, "Oh, oh, the Germans didn't know. They didn't know what well, they were doing." Mm, I think we've mentioned on the show that now it's a it's officially a Europe EU wide identity. Um, was it? A year ago, two years ago, there was, um, I don't even know the details. It was just a, a statement or some sort of um, declaration passed by, you know, since the last EU election about um, like what Europe is. And they, and there was all this equivalence between the, um, yeah, yeah, the Nazi yes, regime yes, yes, yes. and the, and the communist regime and that Europe yeah, 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 exactly. they freed yeah. itself yeah. from both. Yeah. The, the European Union kind of like routinely mm-hmm. puts out those, um, they're not legislations, they're like statements basically from the parliament being like, it's Nazism a, was bad, but also, yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's a, just an FYI for all the haters out there. <laughs> you just reminding everyone. <laughs> but um, yes, yeah, so I, I guess that kind of leads us to uh, our next question for our, our lovely guest, uh, Lauren, of... Um, like what exactly was the the motive or like how did this um false equivalency or even the even this the equivalency how did this come about like what what's the driving force there well i mean i don't i don't know if i really have a good answer to that but i think there are i mean there are there are different forces uh or different people 
pushing that argument for various reasons. Certainly in in for for like the conservative like right wing conservatives in Western Germany, it was a way to both focus on the Cold War and deflect guilt for for the Nazi period. Hmm. I think um, like for someone like Hubertus Knabe, like the former director of the Stasi Museum and one of the main mm-hmm. um, uh, like advocates of this argument, along with Babarovsky, Jurek Babarovsky. Oh yeah, it's I like, know him. Part of it's just like personal <laughs> trauma, um, like mm. their own dealing with their own ghosts as young people, or like maybe things that happened to them. But I think. Uh, it works as a political uh, and discursive tool today just to delineate a, a moderate sort of like liberal corridor in which politics is allowed to happen um, that both excludes the far right for being, you know, racist and kind of unsightly and embarrassing or whatever, but also excludes any kind of socialist politics. Like the political utility of it uh, today, I think, is, is quite clear. Um, but, but it's still, I mean, it's still, it's definitely a contested, um, argument. Like, I don't think, I think sometimes that people on the left have a tendency to exaggerate to what extent the mainstream, uh, portrays an equivalency between communism and Nazism. Like, certainly the, the, the numbers alone of, like, people killed, um, speak for themselves, but, uh. Yeah, I don't know. I know that's not a very satisfying answer, but I was thinking about this before we did the episode. I, someone like Hubertus Knaba, I think part of it is just because like he found out that one of his friends was like an EM and was spying on him and his wife, and so he's just like you know, there's a real personal personal note to it as well. Sorry, what's uh, is what's an EM? Uh, like a inoffizielle Mitarbeiter, just like a Stasi yeah. spy. Uh, yeah, exactly. That was like there was like one in every ten people in East Germany. Yeah. I mean, I think that's also something. Like when you like, obviously, the Berlin Wall wasn't good, and obviously, mm. people spying on their neighbors wasn't good. Um, but when you look at the whole thing in context, I, I think it's very clear that the society that existed in East Germany was vastly less repressive and much more humane than society in in uh in nazism and the occupation or under nazism the occupation by the soviets for better or for worse was a historical consequence of the rise of fascism Mm -hmm. uh unless like that's like at least it's better at least they beat hitler i guess i'm trying to say (laughs) Uh, that's an interesting it's a a pretty good thing though i I haven't done that that's an interesting point because especially since you brought up babarowski and like uh, he is like a person in the tradition of the historica stride that started in the 80s at fu Um, with this, where this announcement, uh, or with this, where this comparison was for the first time kind of like tried to be like, uh, put into a theory, like an historical theory, saying that, um, and I'm repeating this, um, that <laughs> actually Hitler's concentration camps were just a reaction to Stalin's gulags. So that is like the argument. Right, that, well, that, that the concentration camps were inspired by the yeah, gulags. Ex- yeah, inspired, yeah, exactly. But I think the more sinister note to that, and Babarovsky, I, I mean, I know he's like a right-winger and stuff, but he's still like one of the best professors I've ever had. I know, in terms yeah, of yeah. Like, yeah. He's a great lecturer. Like, he's crazy, I think, probably. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> he's a great lecturer. He's... 
he's like, uh, yeah, he, he, was, he at one point, I think, was a serious historian. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who definitely. has kind yeah, of I've been lost in, like, this <laughs> personal agenda mm-hmm. of, yeah. of, of drawing an equivalency between, basically between Stalin and him. Yeah. Um, that's, like, his main point. Yeah. Mm. But I think with, there's also kind of a, like, with Ernst Neute, who's the, the grandfather of all of this, mm. there's certainly, like, an anti-Semitic yeah. under to the whole thing in that there's he kind of suggests that the holocaust was also a response mm-hmm. to the barbarism of the russian revolution which you know was led by jews yeah yeah, yeah and so exactly. that, there's that those kinds of like those kinds of narratives both dabble in anti-semitism and also serve to somehow excuse or at least relativize the crimes of nazism yeah. Um, but I think most of those people, I mean, even Babarovsky, like he may still have his professorship, but his his institute was canceled. I mean, these people, mm-hmm. they're, they're even kind of at this point, they're on the margins in mainstream histor- history writing, which doesn't mean that like Marxism is now the dominant framework. Uh, Damn. Yeah, not, <laughs> I don't know. I was, I was listening to a lot of Prager U this week, and I was told that <laughs> so, uh, uh, Wait, I want to, uh, n- not to dwell on the academic stuff, mm-hmm. but I do think it's worth pointing out that we have, um, Lauren mentioned the, the 80s when there starts to be a shift, uh, maybe, a gr- maybe a begrudging acceptance uh, amongst the like center-right in West Germany about uh, at least calling something Tag der Befreiung, and then we have a date... Um, after 1989, uh, sometime, where there's a, a new idea of Europe that's based around um, this kind of equivalence between the Nazis and the Soviet Union and you know, kind of a, a befrying from both of these forces to create this mm-hmm. new Europe. Um, can uh, Lauren, maybe, can you explain just quickly what the historic Streit is, maybe when it took place, and how that kind of laid the groundwork for um, these, these debates? Well, I mean, that, the historical threat began in the 1980s with this guy, Nolta, mm-hmm. putting forward, like, this argument that we were just talking about, that you have to view, like, basically uh, relativizing the crimes of Nazism by portraying them as, one, a response to Soviet aggression, and um, and and specifically the claim that the concentration camps were kind of inspired by the gulags or that the, mm. it was the image of the gulag that gave the Nazis the idea of uh, building this camp network in the first place, which like, I don't know, you know, maybe, uh, maybe like uh, Goebbels, not Goebbels rather, but um, you know, Himmler, Goering, one of these people thought the gulags were an interesting project to develop in Germany but it's it's a fundamental like shifting of the blame or the genesis of of fascism off of Germany and off of Central Europe and onto the Soviet Union um Mm. and you know I mean at the time I think consensus was that that side of the argument lost that Habermas and all these liberal historians who answered Mm. Nolta won the debate and certainly that view is not the mainstream view in official German politics or academia, but it still exists on the right-wing fringes. And like what I was said at the beginning of the show, like everything that the IFD said yesterday would have come from the right wing of the CDU 30 years ago. There's been a general convergence towards the center in Germany uh, mm. on all kinds of political and cultural and social questions, including German war guilt. Um, 
which then forces people who used to still be on the right wing of the mainstream 30, 40 years ago into a more radical formation like the IFD. But they're really just like, you know, the IFD are jerk-offs, but they're not really spouting off openly anti uh, neo-Nazi propaganda. They're really just saying what used to be mainstream German conservatism, but the CDU has moved so far to the center that they no longer have space in their, own, in their former party. And I think, but I think the wider question of like um, the equivalence of communism and Nazism outside of Germany, I think, is much more common uh, in the countries of the former Eastern Bloc, in a place like the Baltics. But because they can at least some semi plausibly claim to not have been guilty of either, you know, like I guess I'm like I'm certainly more sympathetic to like the Latvians or the Lithuanians, not, not sympathetic to the Latvians um. and Lithuanians that fought with the Waffen-SS, <laughs> but like, yeah. but they can make, I mean, they, yes, they were invaded, right? Like, uh, I mean, Eastern Poland and the Baltic States were secretly divided up between the Soviets and the Germans yeah. long before the German invasion of the Soviet Union. And they were occupied and, you know, forcefully integrated into the Soviet Union. Like, there's a legitimate historical claim there. Whereas, like, I don't know, man. East Germany, like, they kind of had it coming. Uh, <laughs> after, after, you know, after you voted, I mean, yeah. Uh, obviously, collective guilt is, like, a, a historical and, like, problematic kind of way to see the world. But to the extent that it's a real thing, like, the Germans are collectively guilty in a way the Latvians are not, I would say. Yeah, yeah. I, I just wouldn't, like, excuse the Latvians too much because they were quite eager to start with... Um, putting uh, Jewish people, uh, the Jewish population into uh, camps before the Nazis were even there. Oh, so kind right, of like yeah, already yeah. preparing for the Nazis to arrive. Sure, and that uh, happened in Poland in, in, in many instances yeah. as well. Um, yeah. Which, is, which, and which, of course, then nationalists in those countries will deny that and say that that's like Soros propaganda or something. Mm. Yeah. But, um, but like, the, the, like the, the, the general kind of like... Sorry, sorry, go on. Well, anti-Semitism was just like a generalized phenomenon yeah. around Europe at the time, or perhaps particularly bad in Poland and Germany for other places. But Hitler and the Nazis were the first like political formation to yeah. take that widespread anti-Semitism and turn it into a political program mm. with state power. Um, but, yeah. you know, so that probably wasn't going to happen in Poland or Latvia without a German invasion. Yeah, I'm, I'm just saying that the Latvians are not very good with, like, um, processing what they oh, have done. Oh, their remembrance culture is insane. I mean, just saying, yeah. like, the fucking 15th of March, where they still march with uh, um, voluntary legionnaires that, that joined the German legions as being, like, as they say, freedom fighters for Latvia. I mean, they still do that. They still have a lot of... I mean, yeah, it's okay. That's pretty fucked. They yeah. have, a, they don't really um, work through uh, or reflect on on the, yeah, on their no, collaboration. The, the, the general, the general anti-Semitism across Europe was like a massive problem. I, I, I think there's kind of been a, a somewhat a bit of a revisionism or just like a, a 
an ability not to focus on this part of the history, but there's like there is a reason why there was a segment of the French population that didn't put up a huge huff when yeah. the Germans came rolling in oh, and established yeah. <laughs> Fiji France. And yeah. there is a reason why like the Americans didn't necessarily believe about the like the Holocaust was happening, even though like nearly every Jewish person yeah. in America at the time was saying this is happening. And then they find the camps at the end of the war and they're like, Oh, yeah, cool. Okay. Whoops. Um, like it's definitely nowhere near to the same horrifying extent as what the the Germans did, but like anti-Semitism for millennia has been the backdrop for like all of Christendom. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I I think uh, this is kind of just like a, a weird example, but I was just thinking about this, and when we've covered covered other countries, like yeah, we focus a lot on the bigger European countries that then like obviously everyone, you know more or less kind of knows what's going on in them who listens to our show. But, like, let us not forget that, like, the vice, like, whatever the position is, I guess it would be, like, the, the the person below the prime minister of Greece we've talked about, mm. of uh, Atonis Gioradis, is, like, literally used to sell, like, anti-Semitic books on Greek TV. Yeah. Like, yeah. a few years ago. Like, yeah. it's not even that it's, like, an ideology that then just, like, disappeared. Like, and I mean, like, even, like, go to, like, like, he I, has, I... He has not had to apologize for those old tweets. Like, no. Like, <laughs> like, because, I mean, like, to be fair, he's, in he's like, one in a country that no one pays attention for unless they're, like, you know, left-wing government being bad. Or, um, you know, like, look at Hungary and stuff like that. Only when, only when, like, anyone only really cares when it's just, like, like the election, that, not even the election, but the appointment that Orban did the other day. But that had been going on for how many years? And just, like, the rampant anti-Semitism in that government's insane. And just pretty much completely ignored by the general populace of Europe. Like, no one's really hammered Orban on, on his, on his anti-Semitism uh, up until he, like, I mean, yeah, the, like, the anti, like, Hiding it as like, oh, just I'm against globalists and anti-Soro stuff is just like the mm. American way of doing it. Mm. But it still is like, a, I mean, like just a rampant ideology throughout a, a large portion of Europe. If you talk to people then who are just like, I don't know, like, like normal. I don't know how to describe it like without sounding bad, but it's like anti-Semitism is quite normalized in Europe. Yeah. And then there's a, a also just while while we're on the topic of paying attention to the smaller countries and the legacy of World War II, I want to remind everyone that Ireland was basically the poor Nazis Argentina. Um, like there was just because I I'm an Irish person of German descent and I had to really really make sure that wasn't where we came from. <laughs> um, Lauren, I want to ask something. Um, it's kind of backtracking a little, but I wanted to make sure we, we talked about it um, because you mentioned that um, May 8th wasn't, uh, you know, it was still a Vectog in East Germany. Uh, what was the, but still like uh, anti-fascism defeating the Nazis was a huge part of the, I mean, the national culture, national narrative, I guess, if you will. So what was the, if not May 8th, then what was the, what was that narrative in uh, in the former East Germany? Well, I mean, May 8th was still like uh, celebrated. It's just people still had to go to work, but that probably had, at least that is after they, so uh, after, I forgot when the five-day week was introduced in East Germany. I think it was in the late 60s. After the five-day week was introduced, Several political holidays, including May 8th, went back to being working days. Uh, when there was a six-day work week, they did get May 8th off. But May 8th was still an important day. Just people went to work. But, you you know, you still laid carnations at the monuments and maybe mm-hmm. went to some gathering or something. Um, and, like, some local, like, 
Kreisparteisekretär gave a little speech. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the East German narrative was uh, in many ways kind of the, you know, I don't want to argue for equivalence between East and West in the Cold War either, but um, the, you know, like the official slogan for, was something like, uh, like, we're the victors of history. So there was a similarly ahistorical narrative of basically East Germany as the anti-fascist state where the anti-fascists took power, unlike in the West, where the Nazis were allowed to continue ruling under a democratic guise. Um, and there's like elements of truth to that narrative as well as a great deal of embellishment. And I imagine, um, especially because you couldn't talk about the treatment by the Red Army of German citizens, like that was officially taboo. I think many people in East Germany had their own very negative memories of the war and of the immediate post-war period for which there was no space um, uh, to talk about. Maybe that also led to festering right-wing sentiments among segments of the population. I don't know. But yeah, officially, like it was a great day and the East German state was the official... Well, the institutional heir to that entire legacy. Um, also meaning that then in the account, in accounts of Nazi repression, the Holocaust uh, was downplayed uh, to some extent and the repression of communists and social democrats was played up. Um, mm. Yeah, I mean, history was always used as like a weapon by whoever's in power to interpret the past in a way that's mm-hmm. favorable towards uh, those ruling in the present. But I think in general, like the East German tradition is probably aesthetically, it's definitely better, but also like politically, <laughs> it has more merit. Yeah. <laughs> wow, history sure is in books. Do you know what's like a book? A magazine. Uh, <laughs> Jacobin D has uh, Jacobin Deutschland has recently launched, and I'm very excited as someone who can't read any German. Uh, so that's that's really cool. Um, and Lauren is writing for Jacobin DE. So that's really cool as well. That's why we have him on the show. Because if you're not reading it, I've seen the stats. Some of you are Germans who listen to the show. If you're not reading Jacobin DE, you should. Uh, Lauren, can, can you give us some uh, good kind of teasers about what's, what's, what's in the magazine so far? What's, what's in the pipeline? <laughs> you can't read German? <laughs> I can't. <laughs> no. <laughs> Do you not know my persona? I am I am the I am the bugbear of every Berliner. I am I am the uh, I refuse to learn German English speaker who lives in the city. Oh god, that ah. was the most fucking condescending way I've ever heard anyone say that. That was awesome. That was <laughs> That should motivate you. No, I deserve it. I'm an, I'm an absolute I'm an absolute piss pig for this. No, I deserve that. <laughs> Oh, that's some real German energy, too. Uh, well, <laughs> I, think, I mean, I've, it's not like I've never met someone who doesn't speak German before, but doesn't it just drive <laughs> me fucking crazy? I mean, I think I lived here and did, I don't know, I, I, whatever. Anyway, back okay, to the no, product I'll, I'm, I'm here I'm, to promote. I'll break the kayfabe. I am actually learning German. Don't ah, worry okay, for anyone okay. who's actually concerned about that. <laughs> but my character is gotcha. fuck the Germans. <laughs> well, fair enough. I mean, that, that character can go with speaking German. Uh, I feel like I'm walking, talking evidence of that. But uh, no, so we, yeah, Jacobin, it's not Jacobin Deutschland because theoretically, uh, you know, we also have articles about Austria and Switzerland. Mm. Um, So we haven't really found like a good way to call it. Like I just usually call Jacobin DE, but yeah, it's a German language version of Jacobin. Um, 
Jacobin Chad. You got to do it that. Yeah. Chad, Chad Jacobin. Mm. I know that there's technically Doc, but change it to Chad. Like we did. Yeah. Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh-huh. <laughs> I speak German, but I'm not the fastest. Um, yeah, we're just, you know, we're uh, we're running a lot of translations from the American Jacobin, but the first issue, which came out on May 1st, is majority original content. I think there are maybe three or four articles translated from the, from the American Jacobin. And yeah, we're trying to do the same... Almost, I guess, the same thing that Jackman does for the English-speaking world in that we want to put out socialist ideas in a way that looks good and sounds good and tries to speak more to the mainstream or the middle of society. Um, And uh, I'm one of the editors, and I have a piece in the first issue, and otherwise uh, uh, I'm largely responsible for, like, figuring out what we want to run from the American version. But I think, um, well, I guess I'm really happy with it so far. Uh, I think Germany needs something like this. And uh, the response we've gotten so far is, in my opinion, surprisingly positive. Um, yeah, I guess I should talk about the first issue or something. Um, I, can, I mean, yeah, I have another question just because you mentioned it. Um, you, uh, like, you said you want to, um, I don't know, copy or adopt the the English language Jacobin's um, kind of mission or uh, the way it situates itself in on the, on the left, uh, left publications. Uh, how do you think that mission is like, how does that fit in the German political ton- context that we just spent partially an, an hour talking about? Like what is the, how, how is that different in the U S and in Germany? And how do you see Jackman fitting in specifically? Um, what, well, like, for example, what um, gaps need to be addressed or things like that? Well, I don't know if it, there are, Gaps that need to, I mean, I don't know if I would put, use the word gaps, but I think the way Jacobin fits in, or the major difference between the two language, uh, language areas, whatever the word is, um, political and social context, is that in Germany you have, you have an existing left sphere and, and left ecosystem, both in terms of publications, organizations, autonomous centers, whatever, like you have a much like thicker, um, yeah, left ecosystem, but it's nevertheless one that's pretty marginalized. And I would almost say ghettoized. So you have a lot of stuff. Um, a lot of people talking to each other or talking to themselves. Whereas in the American context, there was nothing, um, or hardly anything. And so I think the difficult task of breaking out of established left Echo Chambers uh, was more pressing in the United States when the, when Jackman was founding, but that mm. thus also, I don't know if it was thus easier to do, but came more naturally. Whereas I think in Germany, you just, you still have, for better or for worse, a fairly large ecosystem of publications and organizations that, however, um, not, I want to say that they're, I don't want to say that they're bad or that they're lazy, but just that like, uh, they have their established traditions and they struggle more to break out of those or, or grow out of those. Yeah. Um, also because there's less of a pressing need to because you still have whatever's left of the left ecosystem of the post-war era. Uh, and then in East Germany, whatever's left of East Germany. Yeah. I just wanted to like quickly add in that. I'm not going to name any names, but I had, I had an interview actually at, at one of these German public publications 
and they were super nice, super cool, but they had a massive problem of trying to break out of the mold of their traditional mm-hmm. media. And they like yeah. they're like legitimately were like saying like to me like that they were struggling of trying to like, you know, get younger people to come on. One, because of their name of who they were associated with before the fall of the wall. Um, this narrows it down, obviously, to pretty much like two or three three publications. Um, <laughs> and this doesn't mean that that, that that they do bad journalistic work. I think as a term of, of like, like their newspaper stuff that they do, fantastic. But they've been trying to break into like other other avenues and just hasn't been working because they just didn't. I, I don't think then from that traditional mindset they understand how to necessarily like do it. And the thing that I think is like – and to be fair, like they don't need to. Like I mean maybe they do in the sense of like trying to like save the, their, 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 their publication, which it does suck that then like – like some left-wing papers and magazines in Germany are like you know having to you know cut themselves because they just don't do well. Uh, like Tats, for example, is going entirely digital, you know, because um, you know. Oh really? I didn't even know that. Yeah, they're going they're going completely digital next year, which is like okay, easier, but then at the same time, like that does put people out of work, this and that and that. It does you know change the workload mm. and so so on and so forth, um, and. The thing that I, I I got my first issue of Jacobin the other day, and I was first off just blown away by how big it is, and by how nicely put this, together it was. It's just thick paper, yeah. man. No, no, I know. It's, but, it's just, a... <laughs> but aside from that, of just simply in the sense that then, like, I didn't feel gypped, you know, with like only getting like I was legitimately expecting like when you get other magazines that it's like you know thick and flimsy and it'll have like you know five articles and that's it, but it was like actually like you know chock full of of you know things of different topics i mean like the main topic i think of this issue is like what uh, social democracy right if i'm not mistaken but still nonetheless of that then it did feel like for at least looking at german media and maybe it's because i'm i'm used to the like jacobin in the u.s a little bit beforehand but it did feel like something that then like doesn't already exist in this country that then isn't trying to like reinvent itself either because they, Mm -hmm. they have tested the waters in the u.s and it is something that then that germany does need in terms of i think i think like of a left-wing mm. voice that isn't these old voices like you were saying yeah so like for me like coming from ireland where like uh, we're kind of encompassed in the same kind of media sphere as the uk and for like a lot of my time living there it's like the most left thing left-wing thing was the guardian um <laughs> which Oof. uh pour one out for my boys uh f's in the chat but like it's it's it is like was mind blowing to come to Germany and be like, oh, you guys have like sufficiently left wing like daily newspapers, and then you realize, oh, you're facing the same problems like all newspapers are facing. Mm. Oh, I yeah. see. Well, and except for worse, because your your readership was already of a smaller smaller yeah, to begin of with. Course. No, I mean it's. I think it will be a bit of a bloodbath in the next like. Yeah, bloodbath is too harsh of a word, but I think a lot of a lot of publications are going to be encountering existential financial problems in the next. In the next few years, um, but until they're gone, uh, they're still going. You know, as long as they're still here, there's not that pressure to. I don't know. I hate to use a word like innovate, but innovate, um, disrupt. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, which, in some ways, is kind of what. I mean, I hate all those words, but that's kind of what Jacobin in the United States did. Um, is it disrupted? Uh, and uh, oh god, I'm just thinking have... about. I think I saw you tweet this out like the other day about like reflecting on like what American left media looked like before Jacobin. Mm-hmm. Ooh, 
That was yeah, that was really that bad. Was bad. That was it was it was pretty much just like blogs and like a few really horribly run news. I mean, like, and then when all I was in just college, politics at that point between all of them, which was even worse. Like when I was in college, I don't know who did it, but someone would anonymously leave stacks of the People's Weekly World and Mim Notes at the university library. And People's Weekly World, which was the Communist Party's official paper, is now just a website. Mm. And Mim Notes, the Maoist internationalist movement, rest in peace, best left publication of the 20th century, they both, you know, they just, they looked like they were made by old dudes, and they were. Um, yep. Even if occasionally there was maybe an article you wanted to read, uh, there was nothing being made by, like, young people uh, who were not born and bred in, like, this little left echo chamber. And once someone started doing that and did it well, I mean, very quickly it kind of mopped up the competition. Um, I don't know that that's, that's not what I expect to happen here because all these publications are established and have readerships that aren't just going to jump ship and read Jacobin instead. But I hope that because of the way we write and I think also because of the topics we choose, like making the first issue be about reformism, uh, that will maybe also attract different readers who aren't reading established left publications. Because mm. that's always been, for many years, it's been my feeling here, is that the abstract ideas that the left represents are actually quite mainstream in Germany and almost common sense among at least a large minority of people. But the left doesn't reach most of those people, at least not in an organized sense. And I'm hoping that we can kind of expand expand the pool of people who openly identify as socialists by approaching them through another means and with like another a more relaxed approach to politics. You're, you're definitely turning some heads among uh, young online uh, German influencers like uh, Ulf Polschott. <laughs> I don't know. I thought that was great. I, uh, I would retweet that tweet every day till I die. So I was awesome. Do it, King. Um, just keep on, I mean, just keep on, on, on retweeting he, and then retweeting. He, he did write a book called Cool. So you know that he knows what cool is. No fucking way. You're, well, I, I think I think I think we need to have a sense of um, like we need to be sober about these things. Like obviously, somebody like Porchard is not um, a Nazi, right? I mean, and he's he's like maybe a doofus, uh, and maybe he leans to the right. But I think that. Um, the left needs to be much more relaxed about how we engage with these figures. And I think there's another element of the German left that, that I think is not so healthy. It's just kind of allergic, uh, almost childish, uh, not childish, but um, allergic reaction infantile, to anyone to the right. Yeah. Infantile. I think maybe that's the word I'm looking for. You know, I think, um, I kind think of like someone wrote about this. I don't know. I don't remember who though, but. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, this uh, kind of this extremely purist approach to, to interacting with mainstream political figures, and I mean, obviously, someone like Ulf needs to be challenged and criticized. But uh, if you don't have the confidence in your ideas to like interact with people on that level, um, uh, without feeling fearing some kind of like contamination then you're always going to necessarily be reduced to the segment of the population that's already keyed into your ideas and your publications, which is pretty mm. small and shrinking. So that's just, I don't know, like, to me, it's... Ever since I stopped, like, viewing the radical left as the only thing I want to do in my life, 
I have other hobbies. Uh, and so if, I, if I'm going to do politics, if I'm going to like publish political things, I want it to be as good and be read and reach as many people as possible. Um, like, otherwise, it's not really worth it, at least in my opinion. Um, I don't get some kind of like deep psychological, uh, not anymore at least, <laughs> uh, like deep psychological satisfaction from being involved in the left. So whatever we do, I think we should do really well and with maximum impact. But yeah, I nice. thought it was great that Ulf was into us. You <laughs> should, should um, buy an institutional subscription. I have just maybe one little thing. To just as, I'm sorry, I'm just cruising through Twitter right now and seeing that. Then did anyone see the White House's tweet from yesterday? <laughs> I, I, I had a question about Jacobin, but we, we, what what was the tweet? No, <laughs> um, it was a, they just no because this is about the remembrance of of yesterday. They just completely omit that the Soviet Union did anything. On May 8th, 1944, America and Great Britain had victory over Nazis. <laughs> that was it. That nice. was the tweet. Yeah. Well, at least he didn't include France, because that's always farcical. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, sorry. I just had to, like, just speaking of just, like, how, like, like remembrance culture has kind of, like, just been plagued yeah. so much. It's like, you know, uh, if anyone thought that, that Donald Trump is, like, a Russian, you know, asset now, uh, completely remove that from your, from your thoughts, because he would at least, in that case, he would have at least, you know, mentioned at least Russia, if not, you know, falsely mm. equating, you know, Russia to the Soviet Union. It would be kind of funny if Trump was tweeting that the, the infographic from the French serving the French population <laughs> and stuff. Damn, this sucks. Uh. Leave, leave my homies out. So, uh, Lauren, just just to talk a little bit about what's in the first um, uh, issue. So, one thing that I saw on Twitter, which which I also saw in tweets inside the first issue, was um, maybe I don't know people poking fun at Jacobin asking who is the Bernie Sanders of Germany, um, and there were the, there was a widespread in the betting markets. Um, but you do have a long interview with Kevin Kuhnert in uh this issue i mean you uh, you didn't do the interview but no but no it's yeah. in it's in the issue um is there anything is is uh does this mean jackman has picked uh the the german bernie sanders um how do you think that reflects um since we already talked about the american versus german political context um is there any significance people should read into the interview with kevin kunet i like how like americans <laughs> can only view politics in the sense of like the nfl draft well, I, I mean, I, I think, think they should take some... Mariota f- with first interview, but you know. <laughs> well, I think I think that that I can't speak for the rest of the board on this because I think some of them would get mad at me. But uh, the Bernie Sanders of Germany is totally and definitively Oscar Lafontaine, uh, and then maybe a little bit Gregor Gysi. Um, the thing is, just like people don't want to like leftists here don't like that because. Uh, I don't know, because they're not like radical figures, but the fact is neither is Bernie Sanders or yeah. Jeremy Corbyn. These guys are just kind of like yeah. avatars uh, for the rebirth of the left. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I think Kevin Coonard, I don't know, I, I think Kevin Coonard is probably like a decent and honest person, and I thought mm-hmm. the interview was pretty good. Um, but the whole point of the issue, I mean, the issue timing kind of fucking sucks because, uh, uh, you know, Bernie gets kneecapped and then we come out with an issue about social democracy, kind of bad timing. But the idea behind the issue was that if we want to be a left that can win, we have to look back at the last time that the left won in whatever limited sense it won in our own political traditions. And 
as much as I would like to look back on the Communist Party, and, and I do think that the Communist Party is a very interesting historical formation and has lots of really inspiring phases and figures in it, like the closest that the left ever came to being hegemonic uh, in Germany was under social democracy, both before World War I, after World War I, and after World War II. Um, but it's not sexy, it's not revolutionary, um, and so it's not something that like the far left really would talk about that much in Germany. And we kind of wanted to specific, not specifically, but we wanted to, at least when I, uh, actually I don't know if it was my idea anymore, but whenever we came up with the idea of uh, <laughs> having the first issue be about social democracy, part of the point was taking power seriously, taking strategy and history seriously, and not just focusing on whatever is cool or in, um, but trying to take a longer view of things. I don't, I, we, and we're, you know, because of that, we've oftentimes been sort of accused of being like a, a magazine for the users, like for the young socialists. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I don't think that any of our editors really have that much hope that out of current social democracy, any kind of revival will emerge, but that if we're taking a serious approach to politics, we have to be open to every possibility um, and be willing to dialogue with anyone and any social force we think could maybe be part of that rebirth. And I think that maybe, I don't know, I was cautiously optimistic about the new SPD leadership. I think the last month have shown that that was uh, maybe um, overly optimistic uh, (laughs) and that politics in Germany is just suffocating and dead. But um, but that's being a socialist in the 21st century has to mean being open for all kinds of developments. Because if you told anyone five years ago that Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders were going to lead to rebirths of the left in the Anglo-American world, they would have said you're crazy. So mm-hmm. Kevin Cooner becoming the next Jeremy Corbyn is uh, similarly crazy, but that's not impossible. Yeah. This kind of, I mean, like, like, just as like for anyone who's listening who's who hasn't subscribed to our Patreon, uh, we did kind of try to discuss that a little bit as a topic amongst ourselves, and mm. it's a hard thing to bite off, just simply put. And how like I think that then because um, we I think as leftists like to look at then like how like we'll be so infatuated with the sense of like an example like Podemos or Syriza that happens, but it's like look at the political projects that like where then you have these really quick left-wing um you know takeovers of the government like they're in like some of the most like like chaotic democratic systems in in europe and they cannot like something like that would never function in germany or in the united states or in the uk and stuff like that so like we did like kind of try to like you know maybe try to like hash out then at what like like what would it look like? Like, what does it look like in Germany? What does it look like in the sense of like the UK and the US? Because they do have like relatively, I'm not going to say identical political, you know, traditions, but there is like a general sense of like, uh, uh, um, like I think that the left finds themselves in similar crossroads in these these three countries, and you know, some other maybe sense of 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 uh, uh, other other places in Europe where it's like in Spain or in Portugal or in Greece the left is going to obviously react in a complete different sense because of the historical, political, you know, economic factors that then are all playing uh, uh, at play there. So, Well, in Germany, Germany, I think in many ways, like theoretically, Germany would be best positioned for some kind of, not necessarily best positioned to have a mass socialist movement, but if some kind of mass socialist movement emerged, it would be best positioned to actually take and retain power and force to its program 
because you still have a large export-oriented industrial sector mm. with extremely high levels of trade union organizations. So really, from like a classical Marxist standpoint, we're in great territory, uh, but most of the left is not really oriented towards those sectors of society. Um, maybe whatever's left of the left wing of the SPD um, and here and there scattered groups within Die Linke. But most of the left in Germany is oriented around protest politics. Um, maybe they're, maybe they vote for Die Linke, maybe they're in Die Linke, but Die Linke doesn't have anything approaching like a coordinated strategy or to strategy towards the working class, let alone like a coordinated, like coherent electoral strategy. And so the labor movement exists in a world, not in a world into itself. I mean, it's obviously still very much interacting with and engaging with the SPD and there are deep institutional links there. But there's not really anything like an organic trade union left linked to a coherent socialist program. There was yeah, in West yeah. Germany, um, and there are still like fragments of it here and there. Um, but that would, I think, like to me, that should be the central task of any left organization or left person in Germany. And for a while, I had much more hope that Die Linke could maybe begin to, to do that and be that bridge. And certainly when Die Linke was formed, there were a significant number of left-wing shop stewards, etc., who left the SPD and came to Die Linke. But those milieus have not really gelled into something coherent. And now I think... Uh, um, you know, it's good that we have a party like Die Linke in Parliament, but we don't have something like a coherent socialist left intervening in the labor movement, despite the fact that we still have one of the best organized and most powerful labor movements in the world. Kind of an unfortunate historical uh, misalignment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I feel like that's uh, not to drag this on for too much longer but i feel that's a the similar situation you have in the nordic countries as well where you have yeah. these incredibly powerful unions but they're in no way associated with things like vansterpartiet or anything like that yeah exactly exactly and i think as unsexy as it might be that's that's ultimately the task and i think in in a very long-term sense that's what jacobin the united states thinks about and that's kind of what we want to think about um here and kind of make the case that Old school socialist politics. Obviously, you can't you can't copy and paste the politics of the 1920s or the 1930s to the 2020s, and that's not what anyone's advocating. But that that kind of approach that organize the working class, organize the overwhelming majority, and organize them to take and hold state power. Um, that that sexy or unsexy, that's the most promising path towards human emancipation. And you can talk about it and engage in it without, you know, looking like a role player, uh, you know, LARPer reenacting the politics of the 1940s, which many ostensibly Marxist groups sometimes do. What? Hmm. That happens? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, turn my camera back on in the Skype video and it's just me in like full Politburo. And, like, <laughs> car. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? I don't understand. Yeah, as I'm just like, I'm hanging up a photo of Eric Honecker just in like my, in my backdrop. <laughs> right. Well, that's, uh, I think that's been a full episode uh, of Corner Spatey. Uh, and I think we've covered all the points we want to talk about of Jacobin dis disrupting the German media landscape to the Red Army disrupting 
German society. The uh, German landscape. <laughs> German landscape. Yeah. I, I hope. Uh, I hope uh, Jacobin has as much success as the Red Army. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. And uh, Lauren, where can where can people find you online if they want to do so? Uh, well, Jacobin can be found at jacobin.de, and I can be found on Twitter at Frau Bellhorn. Nice. Excellent. And there'll be links to that in the description if anyone doesn't know how to spell Frau, like me, maybe. Um, <laughs> F-R-O-W. I, there's, there's a, definitely a W in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's like Irish orthography, so there's going to be like random like CHs uh-huh. everywhere. and like un- The <laughs> best orthography in the world. How dare you? <laughs> uh, and with that, uh, we will catch you all next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye.